We only, we only want to export uh, Australian product. Australian agricultural suppliers are the best in the world. This is not a catchphrase, it's the truth. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. For some, 2020 has raised a debate between our health and the economy. How to balance the health of the community, whether physical, mental, and also the financial strain too. With such an upheaval of our lives, it's been a year of reckoning for many. But one thing that has been evident, not just in hospitality, is how communities have banded together and supported each other with the purpose of a better life for everyone. Mike Murray is the owner of Prestige Foods, Melbourne. Mike, how are you going? Very well, thanks. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for joining us. You've uh, built this amazing business over 30 years, but when the pandemic landed, just in the Maldives business alone, the company went from generating $2 million a month in sales to zero. What, what was it like at that time? Well, it was a frightening proposition, to be honest with you. But what you have to do is regroup, have a look at the value of who's around you, and then instead of panicking, plan it out. So what we did is we got everybody to take four weeks' holiday. We had reserves to pay them their holiday pay. And in that four weeks, we sat down and reorganised ourselves. The, the most, I guess, the most frightening thing was when, when, the, when we had to pull the plug on exporting to the Maldives, the Maldives clients, as an example, owed us nearly $5 million. And they were, wow. shut, they were shut down too, so they had no revenue. And, uh, and we owed around $3.5 to creditors, which included um, our seafood, our fruit and vegetable supplier, and our freight forwarders. And just the freight forwarder, um, seafood, and fruit and veg was about $1.6 million. Wow. And so we sat down and planned it out. We appointed one woman, her, Dawn Patterson, her name is, uh, who would scare anybody, and um, she set about getting this money in from the resorts and we kept the whole company alive. We kept all the staff on. Nobody uh, was dismissed and we kept going. And uh, the, one, the people who were involved in food service, some of them, came and worked at the factory in Brayside and everybody just sort of kept their job and, and we had enough to, to live on for that period. You mentioned that you had to reorganise the business. Uh, what did that mean from an operations perspective and it, did it change the product lines that you have? No, it didn't change the product line. It just it, What happened was we had to refocus on how we did things and instead of being able to air freight into the Maldives and Singapore and the like, we focused on what we could do domestically. And we had a very strong domestic base uh, generated by our factory at Brayside. So we had all these retort pouches and, uh, and other products going into the market, both food service and manufacturing. Unbelievable. What sort of impact did it have on the business during that time? Was that just to keep afloat or has, has business really boomed in the sort of domestic market in that sense? 
Well, the, 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 the movement in the domestic market sort of offset about 40% of what we lost on the uh, export market. We were turning over roughly $2 million a month, and it went to nothing. That's in food service. Then the retail business through our factory, we gener were generating about two hundred and fifty to 350000 a month. But with the income coming in from the Maldives, the debt has been pay paying off, we are able to survive. That's pretty big. Well, it is. But I'll tell you, the key to this is relationships. The thing that made us uh, survive and kept us going is the relationship that we had with all of our suppliers. You know, we owed 750000 to our freight forwarder, CT Freight, and we paid the whole lot off in two and a half months. Wow. So they're still very close friends and close allies. You've been in business for 30 years and, you know, some of those numbers are really quite big, but what do you do at your factory in Bracer? Well, we manufacture a whole range of stocks, uh, principally veal, chicken, beef and vegetable, and variations of them. So we do concentrated, not concentrated. We also do specialised stocks like fur for the Vietnamese trade. We do a whole range of soups for the retail market, uh, but also for the uh, school lunch program in Victoria. And we've started a year, no, 18 months ago, making or well, cooking pulses like um, chickpeas. We do grains, as in rice, those sorts of things. Why did you get involved in um, stocks and soups and, and that side of food? By chance. <laughs> we, um, the, the, um, uh, a colleague of mine, Dave Kosh and I, went to Guam and then through into Japan to attend a, uh, an exhibition called Food X. And on the way back to Australia, uh, the, there was a typhoon hit Hong Kong. It doesn't sound significant, but it is. And uh, we were locked into a business class lounge for about 12 hours, drinking from the second we arrived. Um, and there were, was a Japanese man there. And he was uh, a little bit short of a quid. By the time we got to the end, he could hardly stand. <laughs> so we helped him. We helped him into, well, we didn't really help him. We just walked with him. And when he got on, he sat one part of the aircraft and Dave and I sat the other. And I'm a thrower. And um, so I picked up a pillow and threw it across, across this Cathay Pacific flight and it hit him in the head. <laughs> but to my absolute delight and surprise, he threw it back again. So I threw a book. And so we then started drinking on the flight to, and went Cathay Pacific going to Sydney and then we were going on to Melbourne domestically, um, and by the time we got to Melbourne, he physically could not stand. So we got, went through his bag, filled out his card as best as we could, walked him up to uh, immigration, and this immigration officer in Sydney was not amused. And we said, look, mate, this is the thing, told him the story, and he said, well, get out of here, but Jesus, you better look after this. And we'd, we'd found out where he was booked in in his briefcase and we went to the hotel in the rocks and put him into, into his room, into bed, and then Dave and I decided to stay there. 
uh, in Sydney because there's no way we were going to let him just be on his own. And we went back, and I, as only the Japanese could do, if I, if I had done exactly that and got out of bed when he did, I'd look like shit. <laughs> but no, he's got, he's got a shirt and tie on. He looks a million dollars shaved. And, uh, we, and we said to him, well, in Australia, you have a beer. You have to, because that cements the deal. It rounds the circle. So we had a beer, and he was as bright as a button. And then we asked him, what did he do? And he said, oh, I buy veal bones. What the hell do you buy veal bones for? He said, oh, we make veal stock in Tokyo. Mm. How do you do this? So he told us. And both Dave and I said to him, well, that's just nonsense. <laughs> You're buying veal bones, freezing them, moving them to Japan, boiling them in Japan and making stock. God, stuff that. We'll buy the veal bones, we'll buy the vegetables, cheaper than you ever pay in Japan. We've got better quality water and, uh, and we'll make stock and ship it from here. And, he, and his, his exact words are, oh, no, 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 no. Japan number one. Oh, fair enough. So um, we gave him some detail and about two months later he sent an email saying, my boss wants to talk to you, which was a man called Takamoto-san. And he rang and I talked to him and he sent a team down here and we formed a joint venture company, 49% owned by them and 51% owned by us. And um, then I bought them out in 19, uh, 1997, I bought them out. Uh, so then it became 100% ours. And we've been making stocks for the Japanese ever since. But we do, we do a lot more countries other than we do it to Denmark. We've just supplied stock to the princess in Denmark who came from Tasmania. So how's, how's that for a kudos? And we, so we, and we do restaurants here and so on and so forth. Well, what makes a great stock? Can you tell us about your stocks and, and what it takes to produce them? Without question, it has to be all natural ingredients no artificial, this sounds like a cliche, but it's true. No artificial additives, and it has to be done like mum would do. You know, what my mother did. I was born in the 40s, and when, when she made stock on a coal-fired, I should really exaggerate and say outside on a, on a fire in the middle of New Zealand, but when she made stock, she'd boil water and simmer it for hours. And that's how you make a good stock. And that's what we do. Atmospheric boiling. We do it for, a, well, anything up to maybe 12, 15, 20 hours. And then you've got a stock that uh, is second to none in the world. Well, 40 years is a long time in business. Can, has there been any sort of major hurdles or um, challenges in those 40 years um, aside from the pandemic this year? Wow. Yes. We used to deal in the Soviet Union and uh, that was our claim to fame. We dealt with the Soviet Union and we had the downing of an airliner over the coast of um, Vladivostok when the Russians shot down a Korean airliner. We had uh, the collapse of the Berlin Wall. Then we had um, the Russian Revolution where Gorbachev was kicked out and they... and they opened up the whole of uh, the Soviet Union to individual uh, gangsters. 
And, um, and then when we moved into Asia and into the food service area, uh, we had SARS, uh, 9-11, the, um, the, what do you call it, the tsunami, um, to name just a few. And every single one we overcame. And I was in Sri Lanka when the tsunami hit Colombo. It was so sad. And our market in the Maldives nearly disappeared. But we rebuilt. Every, it's just it's amazing if you've got the right people around you. This year has been a, a, about rebuilding. Um, what's some advice that you've had from those experiences that you've had of, of rebuilding? What, what does it take? To have, well, a number of things. First is to have people who work with you and around you who you trust implicitly. The second is to have strong relationships with your bankers, insurance, and all of the other commercial professional agencies that you need. And they've got to be absolutely on side. And the other thing is a little bit of luck, a little bit of luck. And the other thing is to have a little bit of vision and step out of your comfort zone. Can I give you an example? I've just made a young man, and he's not that young, but he's a young man to me because I'm in my 70s. Uh, I'm 70 young. Um, who is in his late 20s, the manager of our factory. Now, this is a man who, who could have said, oh, Jesus, I'm not doing that. But he didn't. And he's grabbed it by the short and curlies. I nearly said something else then. Um, and, uh, and shook it. And now and it's changed the whole profile of this uh, factory around. His name's Ed Carenti. And uh, Ed is just a blessing. It's just, it's just been so great to have him on board. How important are people in the prestige food story? 100%. Look, I, I, am the, I have got a personality, I have to be honest with you, that gets into trouble and into um, circumstances all of the time because I put myself out there. I throw pillows um, <laughs> and I take opportunities. If somebody says, Christ, would you like to go and have a look at? I've, I've said yes before they finish the sentence. So we've been invited onto nuclear-powered submarines Wow. I've been into a control room just outside Moscow. It's amazing what you can experience if you put your heart out there. Well, you mentioned the Soviet Union earlier. How, how did you get into the Soviet Union in the beginning? Well, I worked for, this is another fascinating little story, I suppose. I worked for the New Zealand Dairy Board in New Zealand. I'm a New Zealander, or better said, New Zealander. Um, and emigrated here with my then first wife and three children um, and worked for Murray Golden, which was a big uh, cooperative dairy company here, as assistant general manager. And then um, the whole company started to implode. And so I went and worked with a man called Laurie Matheson. Um, he asked me to do a contract job for six months. And Laurie uh, ran a company called Commercial Bureau. And Commercial Bureau, translated into Russian, stands for, stood for Commercial Office of Australia. He was very clever. 
And all he wanted me to do was set up a contract with New Zealand to supply butter into the Soviet Union, which I did. And then the six-month contract finished. And my then partner, my now partner, said, well, shit, my wife's just left me and my wife had just left me. Why don't we do some business? And, um, uh, and I had no money, clearly, because that went back to New Zealand with my wife. And he had no money because he'd given it to his wife. So we went to the ANZ Bank and with uh, Ross and said, look, we want to set up a company. Uh, we're going to call it International Food Processing. Uh, we want to take out a commercial loan. And he had a look at you know, the uh, ANLs of both of us and said, you have to be joking. <laughs> Jesus Christ. You're over 30 and you've got this. And so we told him and he said, well, I can't do it. I could lend you money for a car. So we borrowed enough money for two cars and put that money as a seeding capital and we turned it into a, a million dollars in a year. Wow. And, and how we did that is, again, a personality thing. I got invited through Austrade to the opening of the Belarus Display Centre in um, North Melbourne. And I walked in and I have no embarrassment. If my pants fell down, I wouldn't be embarrassed. And I walk around and here's this bloke standing right in the corner and Dobrodin, Dobrodin, he was a Russian. And I started to talk to him and we had some vodkas and he was lovely and he said to me, you should sell butter and mutton to Russia. And I said, yeah, right. And, uh, and he said, no, 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 yeah. You, I, I come from Canberra, here's my card. Now, I made one big mistake as I met him outside the Soviet uh, consulate in a place that I shouldn't have met him, as obviously, and so it's recorded. Asia, I've got you on tape in a second. So we were then known by the Security Intelligence Service, not that I knew at the time, and uh, this bloke said, go to Moscow and I want you to meet this man and he will buy a butter and mutton from you. So I did. And it was um, in June of 1984, I think, 83 or 84. And, um, and I sat in this hotel and this bloke wouldn't see me because you've got to make very formal arrangements. So I came back, I was furious. And I said to this bloke, you know, this is what I've done. And he said, yeah, no problem. You go back in winter. You go in February. And I don't know why, but I trusted him. So I did. And the, 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 meet, the meeting was at 9 o'clock in the morning. And I was on the ring road, the outer ring road of Moscow. And I thought, well, how long is it going to take to go from there to there? It's snowing constantly. And then the temperature was either minus 20 or minus 25. Not that it matters, but it was about that temperature. So I get in the car at about 8. And bugger me, I arrive at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs where Prodentorg was. At about, in about half an hour. And they won't let you in the building. I had to stand outside. So while I'm standing outside, my, I wear uh, R.M. Williams. I always have done, still do. And the snow went into my boot, liquefied with the heat of, the, uh, of my feet, then froze because it was minus 20 degrees. So when 9 o'clock came, I was nearly in tears and in so much pain and I waddled in, and this man, a man called Mr. Kravenko, who was the head of Prolentor, 
who sat on the Politburo in, uh, in Moscow, said, please, and, um, and I said, mate, I, I can't. So I took my shoes and socks off, put my feet on, the, um, on a chair, the back of a chair, to heat them up. And he sat there in horror initially, and then he laughed and laughed and laughed and said, I will, I will give you one ship of butter and mutton, and if you do well, it's your business. So we took all of the business from elders because we told the truth. I was the first company in, in, in Australia or New Zealand who actually said to the Russians, this is what it's worth, this is what we pay, this is all the costs, we need to make this amount of money, and we beat elders' price dramatically. Wow. So we took all the business. You mentioned a little earlier how important the business in the Maldives has been and, and the loss of that business. Um, you're one of the biggest exporters to the Maldives. How, how did that come about? Through luck. Um, well, because look, snow, ice, minus 20, 28, sunny and sea and beautiful hotels. Where would you go? What's the choice here? Um, no, it, again, we started because the Soviet Union was fracturing and things had changed and we'd moved into the Russian Far East. This is in the late 90s, in 1997, 98. And um, we thought, well, we've got to have another string. So we started selling into Sri Lanka, a little bit into Singapore, like general trading type things. And we were exporting food into Colombo and I met a man called Mark Hare and he was being moved as executive chef to the uh, Conrad Hilton in the Maldives. And he said, mate, you should come over and supply us in the Maldives. So I flew over and we did one shipment, then we did another shipment and then he told his friends at Four Seasons and then we started doing Four Seasons. Today we do 56 resorts but only the top end, the top end resorts. And, and they're still with us. And we've remained, every, when the shutdown occurred, we, we looked after their children. There were people with babies, so we air freighted in, in a roundabout sort of way, baby food. We looked after the real necessities for their life, not from a marketing point of view, but these people had stood by us for years. Um, and now when they've come back, they're back. And so we're building this business again. How have the Maldives bounced back from this experience? Well, they haven't fully, but, well, I'll give you an idea. I'll give you an idea. To, they've been open two and a half months, um, and we've already supplied uh, 38, I think it is, 38 or 39 resorts. Wow. Now, about half of what we used to, but enough to just get everything moving. And we've done this week 26 flights into the Maldives. Wow. And we'll, it'll come right. You've built a business um, exporting Australian products to the world, um, but this year changed things. Will there be lasting impact on international trade because of what's happened? Yeah, I think there will be. I think it'll be for the better, in my opinion. I think people will think much more uh, clearly and much... Um, uh, more sensibly about how they do the business instead of just flying things uh, into places like Mali and to these sorts of areas. You think about, hey, 
should we be bringing asparagus out of Mexico and uh, <coughs> Peru, excuse me, out of Peru uh, in the off-season here and then supply it by air uh, into Mali? It's just nonsense. So I think that will change. I think our approach to business will change. Our human relationships will change. And I think people's attitude to helping each other will change. Ed and I started this year, 2020, with a catchword. We have one for each year, with the word collaboration. Collaborate with others and share the profits and share the joy than try and do everything on your own. And that's what we do. We collaborate. How important are Australian producers for your export business? Oh, 100%. We only, we only want to export uh, Australian product and primarily Victorian if, if, if it's in season. We've stopped bringing in asparagus or buying asparagus in the market that comes in from Mexico and Peru because it goes against everything I believe in. Um, and uh, Australian, Australian agricultural suppliers are the best in the world. This is not a catchphrase, it's the truth. Only surpassed by New Zealand. <laughs> That's a joke, by the way. You're a real opportunist and you've always said yes to opportunities, but tell me about tennis courts. Well, <laughs> um, well if you're sitting in a five-star resort and uh, the general manager of the resort comes up and says, which is what happened, say, says to you, um, um, I'm looking for a tennis court. Do anybody? Do you know anybody in Australia who supplies tennis courts? And the only answer I've got in my body is yes, of course I do. Well, who are they? Me. <laughs> so we quoted a tennis court wow. and found that. And I'll tell you what's interesting about this: Australia makes the best artificial tennis courts in the world. They are the only, one of the few countries in the world that has an aggregate which is uh, harvested in Queensland, that goes with these artificial courts. And so we, we've sold, I think, about 20 now, 2021. Wow. You've built an incredible business over many years. Do you have any advice for people about dealing um, with change during this year and adversity for their own businesses? Well, embrace it. Take it as an opportunity. That's the very first thing we did after we got everything settled and worked out what we needed to do, sat down together and said, right, let's turn this into an opportunity. <coughs> the first thing is that all the restaurants, uh, whether they be overseas or here, got rid of all their expensive expat chefs. So, And, and that applies to restaurants in Melbourne, that funny town, what's it called? Sydney. Um, and elsewhere, that's another joke. And um, so when they came, when the, when the thing opened up again, they haven't got the staff to be able to do what's necessary, not all the, or always the case, but generally speaking, the staff are able to, um, uh, to set the place back in motion. So we are now doing pre-prepared meals for restaurants like lamb shanks, wow. like beef chicks, cheeks, marinated things um, to help in that way. 
So that's that's the op- that's the sort of opportunity that arises. I know you just briefly touched on a bit of that, but what is the future for Prestige Foods? Well, it's, for me, it's fantastic. I've got to get out. I know that because shit, I'll die if I don't. But um, but I'm not going to until I'm 75. And by the time I hit 75, I'm going to have two really wonderful people who will take over. And between them, they'll appoint somebody in the board to run it. And they'll have my daughter uh, possibly as well. And this company will continue and go from strength to strength. And, you know, I'll tell you the demonstration of this is this. Because I've done so much of this, you get to this point where you think, well, obviously it's the only thing you should do or could do. But when you take a step back and allow somebody to come in and say, well, fuck, I reckon I could do it this way, um, and you let them do it, it's amazing what happens. It's, it just takes new approach. It needs people like me to let go. I think all I can do now is create opportunities. Well, Mike, that's amazing advice. Thank you. Thank you. I think it is amazing advice for, for those people that are trying to adapt with change. And we've loved hearing your stories, as crazy as some of them have been. Um, thanks for being on Deep in the Weeds. Uh, please keep in touch and we'll talk again soon. I will, and I hope that when you're in Melbourne, you'll come and say hello. I would love that. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospital community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.